Hi there, just a quick disclaimer before this episode gets underway. There might be a few drops in audio quality here and there, just because we were recording on my computer and Zoom and my internet weren't really playing nice. Well, it's either that or Silicon Valley were listening in and didn't like some of the things we were saying. Either way, we're really sorry about that. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Penny Drops. Thanks for dropping in. Penny Drops is an arts podcast that compiles audio artwork from symphonies to spoken word. If you would like to submit to Penny Drops, please submit your MP3 and waffles to snitchpublishers at gmail.com or via Curator Space. As we mentioned in the last episode, the podcast is now themed, and myself and Will will discuss a text related to that theme and explore how the wonderful submissions we have received pertain to it. For this episode, our theme is observation, invisibility, and visibility. The text to accompany this week's episode is an article in Vogue entitled Can Makeup Be an Anti-Surveillance Tool? It's authored by Lauren Valenti and as ever you can find a link to any of the articles we discuss in the description. Written in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, the article suggests how makeup can be an effective anti-surveillance tool. Struggling to see the link? As facial recognition technologies grow ever more sophisticated, state and corporate surveillance becomes increasingly normalised. Just think about the NHS COVID app, Face ID, or Microsoft Teams tracking your productivity. Concealing's one identity and evading surveillance when acting for liberation becomes a near necessity for protest in the 21st century. It's worth noting at this point that facial recognition software is notoriously bad at correctly identifying black individuals and people of colour. Yet these groups are more likely to be actively surveilled. More on this later. We're just sowing a thought seed at the moment. Back to makeup. How can it avert the eternal glassy gaze of the Zook? Enter stage left Norman Wilkinson, a British marine artist working during World War I. Enter stage right Adam Harvey, a contemporary artist based in Berlin. Exit pursued by a bear. Principal component analysis. In 2010, Adam Harvey began a project called Computer Vision Dazzle, which interrogated how one could use paint, jewels, hair, or to put it more succinctly, cosmetics, to prevent complex facial recognition algorithms from recognising individuals. The dazzle of CV Dazzle stems from Norman Wilkinson's idea of dazzle camouflage, which was utilised by British ships during the First World War. The camouflage consists of bold, colourful, geometric shapes, much to Picasso's chagrin, resulting in a dizzying facade which warps the enemy's perception of the size, speed and type of bow. Seriously, check these ships out. They're incredible. The idea of CV Dazzle also made its way across... The idea of Computer Vision Dazzle made its way across the channel with the work of the London-based collective Dazzle Club, which protested the Met's use of real-time facial recognition cameras by marching in full CV Dazzle garb. Back over in the land of the free, Maryland-based multidisciplinary performance artist Maud Ashiampung interprets CV Dazzle and works closely with local grassroots activists. So far, so good for CV Dazzle-ish. As facial recognition algorithms become increasingly sophisticated, they can actually identify you by your ears, no joke. And makeup is shown to exacerbate the effects of tear gas. Becoming invisible to the machine gaze of surveillance society becomes difficult. Nonetheless, CV Dazzle reveals an important function of makeup as a prime example of visual self-expression that skews powerfully political. 
So to kick off this podcast centered on the theme of observation, invisibility and visibility, here's a piece by Dylan Woodall entitled Sightseeing. And here's what Dylan has to say about it. Sightseeing is a piece I made three years ago. It's a mixture of spoken word, a field recording by my brother, and some light guitar and vocals. All of these components were composed separately, but it felt right that they operated in unison, as I took inspiration while gazing out of my bedroom window one evening. Though it was written in a reactionary manner and shelved aside for a few years, the words felt relevant to the current climate we find ourselves in. Now we turn to Dylan Woodall with Sightseeing. This time alone is what I long for. Days spent square-eyed on my ones in front of the TV, but it was never just me. Subconscious need for a presence, feeling tense, not relaxed, no memories from the past, still no tense like the present. Planes, trains, old ways, they chug by, looking further than the purple of the sky. Trees silhouetted in the foreground, came so used to hearing nothing but a false sound. This kind of silence makes you realise everything is so loud Even the silence I'm hearing right now Consumes me, runs through me White crackle static on the TV Excited by reruns of sitcoms from the 90s When all I need to do is press the off switch to sightsee And that brings us to our first talking point, actually, which is the face and cosmetics. As ever, it's useful to start with some definitions and etymology. And interestingly enough, the etymology of cosmetics reveals kind of a tension in our common understanding of the word. So it comes from the Greek cosmetics, which means is skilled in adornment. And cosmetics, we can trace it further back to the word cosmine, which means to arrange. We can trace cosmine even further back from cosmos, which is order. It's the ancient Greeks word for the universe, and it's the antonym to chaos. So within the word cosmetics, we can see that there's this idea of embellishing and arranging to bring order from disorder. Something that was mentioned in Valenti's article was this phrase, modern day battle gear. And this links wonderfully with Dazzletech. You've got to remember, Dazzle started in the First World War. It's important that we latch onto the idea of makeup as modern day battle gear, because it transforms makeup into more than just something to make you look good, right? And I think this is what puts a bit of a hitch in the old... I think it's kind of like a an early feminist idea that makeup is somehow antithetical to the functions of feminism, right? And when I was Googling this, I came across an article in The Independent that said 
and this is it quoted here for us, come on feminists, ditch the makeup bag. It's a far more radical statement than burning your bra. And it reminded me that makeup is an incredibly divisive thing within feminism, especially. So you've got this generational divide, right? And I think that it comes down to the idea that the brand of feminism we have at the moment places the individual first rather than maybe the collective aims of feminism for all women, which obviously has its own difficulties because the kind of uh, 1970s feminism was very white and doesn't really or didn't really um, address the needs of a lot of black women and women of colour. But I think the idea that's important here is that contemporary feminism or, you know, 2020 slash 2021 feminism is very much about the individual and individual choice. So choosing to wear makeup is the, the ultimate feminist thing because you've chosen to do it. Whereas I think older generations of feminists might disagree with that and say that, you know, you're just um, putting this stuff on. It's a function of the patriarchy. You're buying into this system. And I think when we say battle gear, that changes it even beyond just individual choice that's that kind of like brings it back into the collective of feminism right that you know we're we're in battle and in this case it's a battle against surveillance technology which affects everybody I guess another element to this as well is the battle gear I think can also refer to a different kind of struggle or war and not just against anti-surveillance technology but I think a kind of conflict with gender and this we see definitely in the way makeup is used in drag. And I've found some quotations from some really famous drag queens who were on RuPaul. And it's an article in Elle, and that's it's all linked below. But GGB says, wearing makeup has this huge power. It gives you the ability to transform yourself into a super version of yourself. And I think this is, again, something that extends this, the individual choice of makeup this is like you're wearing it to gain something that prepares you for the world it prepares you to face things to I don't know overcome something and I guess this is sort of echoed by the other drag queens from the article Heidi in closet says the best advice I've ever received is don't be afraid of the makeup just put it on so it's like makeup as an activity that helps you overcome fear the performance of putting on makeup can be really therapeutic or can be a ritual that maybe like prepares you for something and I think that's you know a lot of the reason why maybe people enjoy like a long makeup routine is because it's you you know you're getting yourself ready for the day and I think you know we all find ways to get ourselves ready if it's putting on certain clothes or putting on makeup we see this also echoed in Latrice Royale's quote which says makeup really does change the landscape of who we are yeah and i think that's really evident in the nicknames that makeup has um for things like war paint you know like you know you're putting your war paint on and i can only speak from my lived experience of not wearing makeup apart from you know when i was a kid and i'd like dress up as lady penelope and my mum would put you know makeup on me i've never chosen to wear makeup something that i observe a lot is this misogynistic false dichotomy between the real person 
which is you know somebody that's not wearing makeup and, and a fake person wearing makeup you know when we hear the comments like oh that's that person mm, looks so catfishing. fake or, um yeah or the 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 locker room banter that is just misogynistic cods wallop absolutely and i think that's a strange thing that then the the kind of old school feminism i guess we're calling it but like the, the 70s brand of feminism that's it's sort of buying into that a little bit as well that the way that you're changed after putting on makeup is worse or inauthentic maybe and that is strange because every day you kind of you put on these layers of um inauthenticity in some ways to kind of get on with your day right so like I feel like makeup is you know if it is that for some people which it could definitely be maybe it is like completely um obscuring a a person that you feel like you really are underneath but I think in most cases it's a celebration or like a desire to transform and discover for a good reason I mean, again, this is a strange thing to talk about as somebody who doesn't really wear makeup, very rarely and in in very minimal ways. Um, but I think it's something that I've always, I've always been really jealous of the way that young women I've grown up with have sort of gathered together to do their makeup before they go out. And that's, I feel like I've missed out on that ritual and that's definitely a ritual of like you know all the girls getting their makeup bags out and borrowing each other's eyeliner or whatever I really like that and I think it's again another way that makeup can serve people is as a uniter those sort of ideas about um belonging and identity links really nicely with our second track which is by Stray Mac and Lloyd Fears entitled Rufus And here's some exposition about the track from the artists themselves. 10-hour forklift driving shifts are monotonous and dull, especially knowing that on your two days off, there isn't much more to do other than relax at home and create. My creations always involve observing others in whatever surroundings I'm in. So my creations have often focused on my lockdown work life at Amazon. It's a melting pot of age, ethnicities, cultures, yet it's difficult to find social circles there as everybody is so different and there are many language barriers. I wrote about my colleagues eating lunch because it's a time where we're all sat on individual tables with screens between us so we don't splatter each other with vapour. It's a lonely lunch time, but I noticed the majority have something in common and that is eating meat. I felt more alienated than ever as a vegan. Piggybacking off this, Lloyd Fears says, I was thinking about the claustrophobia I felt in almost every job I've had. I climbed the walls of offices, but for this, I was specifically thinking about sitting in a cage at the Amazon warehouse, feeling the machines crash all around me as my screen constantly flashes instructions on my next task. This track recontextualizes mechanical chaos into my and Here we have Rufus. My right is a man peeling slices of cheap ham out of the packet, making cubes of cheese he has pre-prepared in a plastic tub encasing the cheese in the ham and pushing them into his mouth with his index finger. Mindlessly, whilst being engrossed in his kindle. In front of me is a pale young girl doing a similar thing, but with what looks like arpaccio beef. I don't know, probably thinly sliced cured beef. I'm not an expert. 
is in a Polish wrapper. I looked at her name badge. She is Polish. Her eating rate is more quick, quicker, and more frantic. Her thirst for animal flesh is greater than the British man in his 50s, with his belly poking out from under his T-shirt. Her thirst is greater than that of the Romanian woman who terrified me when I first started, nibbling away at some chicken drumsticks out of tin foil. He is licking her fingers now. I'm watching my colleagues eating their meat. I'm watching my colleagues eating their meat whilst thinking about the Bulgarian who thinks he owns the place, walks more with his shoulders than his legs. Enjoys grabbing his balls and threatening to kill me before he disappears into the shelving on a daily basis. I smile, what look, I think to myself, to find such a novelty. A man who has stereotyped himself into the caricature of an Eastern European gangster with the bardo goes unmatched until he speaks of his beloved pet rabbit, Rufus. And that was Stray Mac and Lloyd Fears with Rufus. Um, our next talking point is about the visibility or invisibility of power in the 21st century. Um, and I don't want this section to be me uh, imitating a certain bold theory man. Um, but there's this idea of tech as a vanisher of power. What I mean by that is the average Joe, myself included, until having to research for this episode, we don't really know the ins and outs of the algorithms that control our lives 
and the biases that they have within them. And this is something that is still not really spoken about, despite, you know, the popularity of the social dilemma, Facebook groups, you know, we all know that Facebook and YouTube recommends extremist content because it's going to make you stay on the site, but we don't know about um, sort of the things like Google autocomplete and the algorithms that they're based on. So she was going to Google autocomplete and type in women are or um, black people are or disabled people are you're probably going to be quite shocked at what comes up and what google fills those results as and this is a worrying problem because there's a wonderful paper that we'll link in the description which talks about google autocomplete as completing somebody's thoughts of them we run into big problems when algorithms are prejudiced and biased against minorities so we can see that algorithms become a tool of oppression and they're not these seemingly inconspicuous things. They actually have a huge impact on maintaining ossified hierarchies along the lines of race, gender and class. And something else to talk about when, with the invisibility of power is the internet of things and how everything's connected, um, but we can't see that. And there's been cases of domestic abuse where an abusive partner has ramped up the central heating in their partner's home in the height of summer and it shows that the internet of things mm. and everything being connected and and these actual devices talking to each other have the potentiality for new forms of control absolutely. and power absolutely you just reminded me there it's the worrying thing about these algorithms is that they're not malign in and of themselves you know they're not evil things the data we're feeding them is just biased and there's a really excellent book called The Gender Data Gap. So Caroline Criado Perez, she's it's an, like a home of data. It's just full of facts. So the data that we're giving to these algorithms hasn't been sex aggregated, so we haven't separated them into sex. So you're not getting a proper comprehensive view of data specifically about women that will ultimately benefit women. Like limited data is, is the dangerous thing and it can affect women's lives. Like you said earlier, you mentioned domestic abuse. If you're not designing things or not making things that are, are based on data about women, they're not going to be able to benefit women. And a lot of the time, poorly designed things like machines or city planning is not really designed with women in mind that can then affect the way women travel, the way they live and their health. It really highlights the sort of the potentially pernicious power that um, these algorithms and these technologies have and the fact that it's shielded from view um, and it is um, intertwined with knowledge. You know, we're forming beliefs um, based on these, on these invisible forces. And speaking of invisible forces... Um, our next track is by Guy Fixon, who is a London-based sound artist, engineer and composer. He has worked with bands such as My Bloody Valentine, Stereo Lab, and The Pixies, as well as having formed the electronic pop post-rock band Laika. He has also been dipping his toes into the world of film, working as a sound designer, composer and recordist on several shots and features. 
Fixen's track, Tobble Priara, is a sonic sculpture formed from recordings of the electromagnetic radiation received from an electric toothbrush, a wind farm turbine, a motorbike, a digital camera, an electricity substation, a supermarket security scanner, and a buried telephone cable. He writes that, quote, it seeks to use these normally hidden voices to form a choir and a language to communicate with our ever more self-aware electrical companions. The piece was also made to raise awareness of EMR pollution and the potential communal health risks of swimming in polluted waters. In a lovely turn of phrase, Fixon states that Tobble Priara illuminates a web of questions and answers normally inaccessible to our senses.
Right, on to the third talking point, surveillance tech as a power tool. And in researching this particular talking point, I came across some quite scary statistics. And I'm just going to paraphrase them here. But essentially, facial analysis algorithms misclassify black women nearly 35% of the time, while they get it pretty much right all of the time for white men. And it's the same happens with people of color, especially women and children and the elderly. Um, And this is actually an American study. And they said that the federal government released this report, actually, and that highlighted this error. And this shows us plainly and overwhelmingly that there is a racial bias in these algorithms and it's impacting people of color in a really serious way because if you're misidentifying people you could be wrongfully arresting them and detaining them for things they haven't done or for longer than is necessary and of course this can also lead to police violence which we know in america especially is very deadly and so to kind of bring an example into this and i think you have an example as well but i'll i'll stick to america in the us this happens a lot in relation to cannabis arrests um and according to the study cannabis use rates are actually the same for white and black people but Black people are nearly four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people. Since black people are more likely to be arrested than white people for minor crimes like cannabis possession, their faces and personal data are more likely to be in mugshot databases. And, you know, the ramifications of a criminal record can impact your life going forward. Obviously, that's, you know, not always the case, but I think that is something to bear in mind that it could be a barrier to... Uh, employment sometimes you've got a you've got a point about the UK actually that relates to this yeah I do um and I always think it's great to always bear in mind what's happening at home as well this sort of database already exists in the form of the London gang matrix which is comprised disproportionately of young black men and and the fact that this is happening in the UK and the US ties into a, a point that Ava puts really well which is the use of face recognition technology tied into mugshot databases exacerbates racism in a criminal legal system that already disproportionately polices and criminalizes black people and that's actually a quote from the one of the papers but i think we should definitely link this back to the idea of makeup as battle gear right um that black people especially have to arm themselves against these racialized technologies and it's concerning then that people have to do it themselves, right? that they have to look after themselves through their own power rather than the systems that are meant to protect them. Yeah, that idea is something that is apparent not just in art projects like CV Dazzle, but also design and fashion projects that have been happening um, in the past decade. There's a wonderful part in Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which talks about how fashion designers and artists um, have created new forms of anti-surveillance wear. So there's a coat which links to your phone and if an app is tracking your location, um, it releases a metallic odor. So you know that you're being tracked. And Zuboff's point is that whilst all of this 
incredible art and design and fashion is being produced out of the situation um to put it crudely it's too fucked a situation to persist definitely and it's a situation that has been going on for a long time because the surveillance of black people especially in the in the US has quite a, an unaddressed history um and the scholar Simon Brown talks about the lantern laws in the 18th century which were put in place in New York City that essentially demanded that black mixed race and indigenous enslaved people carry candle lanterns with them if they walked about the city after sunset and not in the company of a white person and they would actually receive punishments if they didn't carry the supervisory device right and this is echoed in not only the way that police mugshots work, but also the fact that I think Simon Brown mentions this as well, that cameras are sometimes put in neighborhoods where there might be a large population of black people or black communities. And it's sort of like this big brother constant watching, which is what is the really fucked thing as well, where so you can't, people can't even go home and be safe. And I think maybe this is a conversation for another time, but that very fine line between you know, like neighborhood watch and safety and then surveillance and oppression, right? The use of this racist surveillance is justified on two grounds, which is terrorism and the war on drugs and gangs, right? Which are two very racially charged words or phrases or ideas or tactics, right? Um, and it's not just terrorism and the war on drugs and gangs that has recently attracted this surveillance and attention apparently in boston there were documents that revealed that the police department was using social media surveillance to track the use of the phrase black lives matter online to intercept protests to identify people that were going to protests and to arrest them and um, i don't need to bring back to mind you know the images from the protests because uh, some of it was quite gruesome and horrible what the police did amidst all the peace as well but yeah that's something to also bear in mind that it's not just inflammatory stuff that's being tracked it's it you know when people when powerful people who have an agenda I think have access to this sort of surveillance technology you know it might not be as um as kosher as just terrorism and the war on drugs, right? For any avid listeners out there, a wonderful homework assignment, go and read This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality um, by Peter Pomerantsev. Uh, I'm probably butchering that. Um, but it's about disinformation and propaganda and the way that it works in protest movements. And it's, it's a really good read. Um, yeah, this isn't a book review. Sorry. There's quite a lengthy reading list for this podcast anyway <laughs> for anyone who cares <laughs> yeah. but I feel like yeah. I don't know I surveillance technology and the the danger of surveillance technology I think is something that everyone can be interested in because it's so horrifying and close to home you know it's, it's no new thing slash it's also happening to everyone right the way that they're data is being tracked and monitored and stored and potentially sold off and whatever so i don't know it's um it's one for everyone there's a delicious irony in this as well which is that people who um often feel represented by you know the art historical canon or the literary canon 
are now talking about the oppressive gays, the the machine gays, things like this, when you know people have been living mm-hmm. with the the male gays or the, the occidental yes. gays for yeah, exactly. You know, a, a huge amount of time, and there there is. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. And I think that's so worth bringing up, actually, that like the threat of surveillance, it shouldn't be surprising, I guess. And yeah, bringing, making sure that, you know, people are aware of the the way that it can exacerbate racist violence or race, racial discrimination is so important because that's got to change. And I think we've reached this point of Arendtian comprehension of the situation that we face. And as Arendt would say, you know, we've got to face that reality, no matter the pain. Um, But something to alleviate that pain is this wonderful track called Grace by Russ Blooms. Russ Blooms are a musical duo, as well as members of a five-piece band called Rain Dogs. In March last year, when they stopped playing gigs, I wonder why, they hunkered down in their respective home recording studios and started a creative partnership, sending songs to each other like musical pen pals. They describe Rust Blooms as a project creating quality lo-fi sounds with tape and ink. Unfortunately, due to the limitations of the podcast form, we're unable to show you the beautiful visuals that accompany this piece, so we've linked them in the description below. The track you will now hear is called Grace and shares the feelings and emotions evoked whilst observing the vestiges of light from the setting sun. Time 
Thanks for listening, yeah. Dad. Um, <laughs> you can get back to Radio 4 soon, I promise. <laughs> okay, on to talking point number four. Boundaries between the physical and digital and the boundaries of identity. Deep fakes, faces, and the object. Whoa, huge. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um tying things back into tying tying things back to cv dazzle it's a really interesting phenomenon it's something physical which has the pure intention of disrupting something digital this is a nice point to bring in julia Kristeva's notion of the abject 
which is a term developed by feminist philosopher Julia Kristeva in her wonderful essay, Powers of Horror, an essay on objection. The gist of abjection, which somebody much smarter than me should probably explain, is the exploration of the human reaction to the impure or broken or altered, grotesque almost, aspects of the human body. It's just to do with, you know, like gashing wounds, Periods. bodily fluids, corpses, <laughs> periods. Um, it, it, the idea is that it alienates us from ourselves and it brings us to this sort of feeling of uncanniness and threat and that feeling then you know takes over and engulfs us which brings us nicely into the uncanny valley of deep fakes there is this um algorithm or ai that completes incomplete photographs and it was fed however million images on the internet it's been fed and when it completed images of men which you know had just a headshot it would fill in the rest of the body wearing a suit but when fed an image of a woman um it would complete complete the body wearing a bikini and this actually happened they fed it a picture of aoc's face and it and it and it and it, and it ended with a, a picture of her in a bikini which is scary not just because that's possible you know that that you can create a a person essentially on the internet or online in the digital world, but also that these I don't know that the the crossing of boundaries from physical to digital, which is what you were talking about before, then goes further from digital back to physical in this new way because right you've got this image of AOC right that is not her body, but it could have an impact on her in the real world it could you know potentially destroy her career it could you know affect her mental health this is kind of what we're seeing aren't we with the the way that deep fakes work is that it's like it's coming back into the real world and it's like affecting events and I think especially for women it can be quite dangerous because I think a lot of women in politics come under immense pressure to um, maintain a presentable version of themselves. And I'm not saying that men don't have the same pressure, but I think for a lot of women in politics, it's very, very serious, right? You know, you've got to, you, your, your, whole, your body is being constantly looked at and pulled apart. And, you know, you just think about like news headlines, like we're still in day and age where a politician will go and say something important and it will be like, she wore the wrong shade of red. I think it's like, you know, women in politics have to be likable, don't they? They have to be presentable. They have to be sweet. They have to be, you know, formidable as well. Or I don't even know if that's a quality that's really celebrated. So I think that's also kind of like, a big impact of, of deep fakes in terms of affecting women's lives, especially in politics, in the real world. Actually, this also reminded me of the, I, I mean, any talk of deep fakes reminds me of this, is the Wellerman TikTok. Um, because that's like, you know, it, it's creepy for a start. Yeah, if you're just kind of scrolling and you come across it, it's just kind of it's weird. And then you realize that didn't really happen, that those people aren't saying that. And then obviously 
the Wallerman TikTok is such a chill and quite sweet thing that just like happened to pop off what could be the impact of that happening let's say if something divisive was seen to be coming out of the mouth of somebody you know like what what kind of effect could that have on public relations politics policy all sorts of things and if people are doubting the news and the media as much as they are now you know how can how can you ever seem to be truthful if you say that's not me yeah and to sort of bounce off of that is at the moment we're being saved by the uncanny valley we're being saved by the abject but we're soon going to get to that point where we reach that crisis of, of meaning where it's like we don't know when something is true rather than yeah. it being fake that lack of digital literacy is something that Luciano Floridi um, points out, who is a philosopher of information and has coined this term infosphere, which is, you know, he's making the argument that our actual environment and the metaphysical claims that we make about what exists and how we see our reality or what reality is is becoming ever more intermingled with the digital. So again, there's this blurring of the boundary between the physical and digital. And he says that we're currently digital immigrants, but the I generation are the digital natives. And the changing of the boundary of human identity is going to change with this next generation. He says something which I think is has been empirically proven in the pandemic about the about making sure to not sow the seeds of the digital divide so not having access to broadband if if i understand correctly what luciano floridi is saying is that we shouldn't make certain things accessible only to those people who have access to the digital space right which i guess we're starting to see so much more now I don't know I, th- I think what what's kind of frightening about that is if you move everything online right people who don't have access to things like computers or reliable internet access can't access certain opportunities or uh, communities as well which have moved online because of the pandemic for example you, you're then yeah you're limiting who gets to be involved in in something that might have just been you know available to anyone who like lives in a certain area what we're seeing in COVID especially is like places where people might have normally been able to access digital space i.e libraries are closed I guess also actually will like we ha- we haven't even mentioned this but like what would the ramifications be for environmental crises like if we can't be outside we and I don't mean it's like digital versus outside as if like that's the binary here I just mean that on the whole plugged into digital spaces and and we are living digitally does this mean that maybe the the way that we might have interacted before in space has been moved online therefore like everyday moments of having to travel to places being you know like feeling the breeze and it's not that we're all going to sit inside forever because clearly pandemic has shown that we won't but do you know what I mean that there, there could still be a gap between us and nature 
Like that gap's almost um, a third gap, isn't it? Mm. Or like the, the third, the third act of splicing us away from nature. And all this talk of the blurring of boundaries leaves us in a somewhat murky place where we don't know the answers and we're in a historical moment where we have no clarity, um, which links us really nicely to our final track of the episode, which is by Dan Potts, entitled Dark and True. Dan is an artist who at university developed methods for interpreting written texts and visual arts as a function of metaphorical, allegorical projections of personal mental anomalies. So as well as acting as a mode of personal expression, the music seeks to express matters of philosophical resonance through its small and large scale structure. Now, however, Dan composes mainly for film and TV and has had music used in BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Four and Channel Five productions. So here we are, a simple dark piece of music with no clarity titled Dark and True. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penny Drops. We've got an announcement to make, and it's that the next episode will be our last. For our final episode, we invite contributors to submit works on the theme of rebirth. This could be the rebirth of an idea, a thought, or a person. If you like, you can use the word to create something new entirely. It's completely open-ended, so interpret it how you like. In light of Snitch's denouement, we're going to be releasing some new and exciting products in our store, which you can find at www.snitchpublishers.co.uk. 
If you'd like to keep up to date with what we're doing in our final days, follow us on Instagram, at Snitch Publishers. Don't be a stranger. We'll see you next episode.